Well, the book of Hebrews weaves together a, a complex yet compelling argument for the superiority of Jesus and of the covenant he has brought into fulfillment. And here in chapter 9, uh, I, I think we have arrived at peak complexity. And so to begin, let's, let's make sure we have our bearings. The author of Hebrews has constructed his argument with a series of comparisons, right? The old was good, but the new is better. The old was temporary, but the new is eternal. The old was limited, but the new is perfectly effective. The old could cleanse for a time, but the new can cleanse forever. And today we're given yet another comparison. This time it's between the blood of animals and the blood of Jesus. So, what is blood? Two Sundays ago, we, we talked about philosophical materialism and, and how it tends to blind us to the meaning and underlying symbolism of the world around us. So, for, for modern people, for philosophical materialists, Blood is a complex mixture of compounds, including plasma and red and white blood cells. Chemically speaking, blood is hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, and iron. And, and the purpose of blood is to deliver nutrients and to dispose of waste throughout the body. What is blood? For modern people, that is blood. And the Bible doesn't deny that definition of blood. But according to God's design, blood carries with it an even deeper meaning than its chemical makeup or bodily function. Blood is a medium through which to atone for sin. Blood can cover sin. Why? Because God made it that way. He imagined and designed blood for this very purpose. There's a quote in the book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Just, it's well worth your time, by the way. Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. The quote is about water, but it also applies to a discussion of the symbolic significance of blood. So Marilyn Robinson writes, Water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables and doing the wash. Likewise, I would say, blood was made primarily for atoning and only secondarily for whatever we're taught in anatomy class. Throughout the Bible, God repeatedly emphasizes the symbolic function of blood as a means of atonement. We could, we could spend all day tracing the theme of blood from Genesis to Revelation, and I promise you it would be fascinating. Or we could just turn to Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17, verse 10. God says, If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
Again, don't, don't even bother trying to make sense of this unless you accept that God has created a world that is charged with symbolism. God has given blood to us. Before we give it to him, he has given it to us for the primary purpose of making atonement. God has authorized blood to serve this purpose. And the reason why blood is, is symbolically appropriate for this purpose is that blood represents life. According to Leviticus 17, blood is life. The life is in the blood. And we know this. Human beings understand the symbolic meaning of blood intuitively. Virtually every culture around the world recognizes that blood is symbolically significant. Ritual sacrifices almost always involve blood. We relate to one another by blood. And, and even when we don't, we can still become blood brothers, right? Politicians talk about spilling American blood overseas. Sports fans say they bleed the color of their favorite team. Even the idea of a vampire reveals that that we understand the symbolic significance of blood intuitively. Nevertheless, we need to be reminded that in the Bible, blood is a medium through which to atone for sin. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and God has given blood for us on the altar to make atonement for our souls. Every year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, and only the high priest, was permitted to pass through a curtain and into the most holy place. And while there in the most holy place, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats for the sins of the people, to atone for the sins of the people. However, the the annual repetition of the Day of Atonement was a reminder that the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sin once and for all. Because one year later, they were right back where they started. You see, the Day of Atonement was like, it was like restarting your computer. It was like an annual system reboot. Humanity's CPU had become infected with a virus called sin. And the Day of Atonement was like a system reboot. It was, it was temporarily effective. But the Day of Atonement could not remove the virus. What we needed was a system reset, back to our factory settings. And that is what the new covenant has accomplished. Jesus has dealt with the virus by wiping the hard drive and installing a whole new operating system. That's the new covenant. It's a nerdy metaphor, but it's a good one. Now, Hebrews 9, verse 15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus has redeemed the people of God from sin and from the consequences of sin. Verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. We've got to pause here and, and discuss something that is probably of very little interest to you, um, but there's no getting around it, and so just hang with me for a minute. Since chapter 7, the author of Hebrews has been talking about covenants. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus mediates a much more excellent covenant. God has established a new covenant. Covenant, covenant, covenant. And yet, in verse 16, there appears to be a shift from talking about the covenant to talking about a last will and testament. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. But here's the thing. The Greek word is the exact same. When you see the word will, that's the the very same Greek word as the word for covenant. It's the same word that Hebrews has already used 13 times in the last 35 verses. And so the translators of this passage have actually imposed upon us an interpretive decision because they think the idea of a will makes better sense of this passage. But I think that's a mistake. I think we should be very slow to assume that that within this extended discussion of Jewish covenants, the author of Hebrews would shift without warning or without indication to the topic of a will, which was not even a Jewish custom. I think our English translations obscure the meaning of these verses. I, I think the author of Hebrews is still talking about a covenant. And so verses 16 and 17 are not talking about a will. They are talking about a covenant. And the basic point that's being made in these verses is that to ratify a covenant, blood must be shed. But thankfully, this bloodshed can be a representative bloodshed. Because God is gracious, the death of the covenant maker can be represented by the death of of a sacrificial animal. God graciously permits what's called substitutionary atonement. Verse 18. The first covenant was inaugurated with the blood of animals. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's a very helpful summary statement there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This, is, this has always been the case. This has always been how covenants function in the Bible. Because covenants are life and death commitments. And life is in the blood. God imagined and designed blood to serve this purpose. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves 
with better sacrifices than these. Meaning, it, it wasn't just the earthly sanctuary that needed to be sprinkled with blood. This says that the heavenly sanctuary needed to be sprinkled with blood. And that, that's, a, that's a strange thing to consider if you think about it. The, the idea that heaven needed to be purified. Heaven needed to be purified with blood. Jesus presented himself and his blood before the Father in heaven. And heaven was thereby changed in some way. It's not that heaven was imperfect or inadequate in any way. It's just that Jesus was preparing for humanity to enter in. As he says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's how he did it. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then Jesus would, ha- would have had to s- suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Blood must be shed to ratify a covenant and blood must be shed to forgive those who transgress a covenant. Blood must be shed to ratify a covenant and blood must be shed to forgive those who transgress a covenant and praise be to God Because the blood of Jesus does both. The blood of Jesus has ratified a new covenant and the blood of Jesus has forgiven us for transgressing the first covenant. And this means we we have to come to grips with something that, that really doesn't sit well with us and probably for good reason. Christianity is a religion founded upon human sacrifice. Have you ever thought about it that way? This is a religion. Our faith is founded upon the sacrifice of a human being. Since the moment Adam sinned, human blood has always been what God required. And and it's only by His grace that He delayed in requiring it. And it's only by his grace that once he did require it, he required it of Jesus. Christianity is founded upon human sacrifice. That doesn't sit well with us, but there's there's something unique about the blood of Jesus. And it's the uniqueness of the blood of Jesus that transforms the cross from, from something grotesque into something beautiful. You see, the cross of Christ is not, in and of itself, good news. The cross of Christ becomes good news when and only when the death of Christ is undone. The cross is only good news because Christ is risen. And if he is not risen, his blood has not atoned. And so the cross stands as a symbol not of, not of death per se, 
but of the sacrificial offering of an indestructible and inextinguishable life. That's what the cross represents. Think back to Leviticus 17. Blood atones because blood is life. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he wasn't just dying, he was offering up a life. He was offering up an eternal life. The blood of Jesus atones forever because Jesus lives forever. He is alive forever. And having been offered once to bear the sins of many, verse 28, Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As I said earlier, on on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter through the curtain and into the most holy place uh, to present the blood before God. And as the high priest was, was behind the curtain performing this ritual, the congregation would have been outside, quote, eagerly waiting. They were eagerly waiting outside. They would have been eagerly waiting for the high priest to reemerge from behind the curtain, indicating that God had accepted the sacrifice. However, under the old covenant, when the high priest returned from the most holy place, there was still work to be done. There were a number of additional things that he had to do in order to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus' atonement is not like that. Like the high priests before him, Jesus has entered through the curtain into the most holy place, and we, the congregation, are eagerly waiting for his return. But unlike the high priests before him, when Jesus returns, there is no more work left to be done. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In the Bible, in the Bible, waiting is not a passive thing. In the Bible, waiting is an activity. It's something we do. Waiting eagerly means waiting prayerfully. Waiting eagerly means waiting obediently. It means we get ourselves ready. It means we get our our families ready. It means we get our neighbors ready. It means we get the world ready for the return of Christ. Because when our high priest returns, he will bring with him what verse 15 calls the promised eternal inheritance. When our high priest returns, all of creation will experience the fullness of his salvation and redemption. As we just sang, he will wed heaven and earth. He will wed heaven and earth. That is the promised eternal inheritance. That is what his blood has purchased. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have given blood for us on the altar to make atonement for our souls. We thank you for your grace and your patience toward us. Jesus, it was, it was your blood 
your blood freely offered that has brought lasting forgiveness. We, we thank you for that, Jesus, and, and we eagerly wait for your return. Holy Spirit, teach us to wait. Teach us to wait prayerfully and obediently. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.